Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Radical Brown Girls podcast. Happy International Belated Women's Day, everyone. So in honor of International Women's Day, we will be today dedicating our episode to women who inspire us. So the first question is, what's our definition of an empowering woman? Pre? Um, so my definition of an empowering woman would be someone that is fear one that believes in gender equality and is there to shatter all the glass ceilings that may be placed upon us as women. Um, she would also not be scared to speak up for others. She would speak up for herself and as well as those that need a voice. Um, she would be empathetic, strong, encouraging, kind, respectful, um, and genuine. Nice. I like that. Um, so for my definition of an empowering woman, um, it's the woman who comes onto the scene knowing she will face challenges as society still treats women unequally, right? Mm -hmm. Compared to men. However, the woman who empowers others still proceeds knowing the odds are not in her favor. So even though she knows that she's going to face challenges, she still moves forward. So this woman then raises her voice and fights for herself, as well as others who face injustices through avenues that are available to her at that time. So I think um, me and you have some similarities in who we consider to be an empowering woman, for example, like the, the social justice piece, right? Fighting for justice. So yeah, like we do have similarities. And I think like, you know, both of us come from um, backgrounds where we probably didn't grow up seeing too many uh, South Asian women, um, yeah. you know, being known as um, such inspiring women because a lot of us were conditioned to either not speak up or, you know, um, we're encouraged to fight for equal rights or shatter the glass uh, glass ceilings that we had. Um, so now with, you know, the world um, changing, with times changing, with more progress made um, for women rights and all that, um, we see more women that, you know, we can relate to. That, can, that make ourselves um, or, you know, allow ourselves to see that, hey, we could also achieve that one day or we could also be that person one day, that everything's possible for everyone. I agree. So, so here is our top four women who inspire us countdown. Number four, Donald Trump called her nasty, disrespectful, the meanest, the most horrible, a mad woman totally unlikable, angry, and a monster. So her name is Kamala Harris. Her mother was from India. Her father was from Jamaica. They met at a civil rights rally. So she is half black and half South Asian. So after she became a lawyer, she prosecuted cases involving murder, rape, assault, and drug cases from 1990 to 1998. In 1998, she was hired by the Texas District Attorney to lead the criminal unit. Mm -hmm. After a couple of years, she joined the Children and Family Services Unit. She decided to focus on teenage pros 
prostitution, creating a group with another individual called Coalition to End the Exploitation of Kids. Uh, should I start over again? No, just the last sentence that you said. Okay. So she decided to focus on teenage prostitution, creating a group with another individual called Coalition to End the Exploitation of Kids. At this time, police officers were looking through the lens of it being a criminal activity to sell sex. However, Harris believed these young girls were victims who had made choices due to economic necessity and drug addiction. So what are your thoughts on that, Pri? I actually agree with her. Yeah, I 100% agree with her as well. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's the stigma around sex work, especially that um, people think it's a criminal activity. And they only look at it as an act. They don't look at yeah. what made this person, um, you know, go into sex work or um, what are what is their home life like? Do they have their basic needs met? Do they have food on the table? Do they have a shelter? You know? Um, yeah. And a lot of the time it's people that have no other way of making income or struggle to make an mm -hmm. income and they're just trying to survive, you know? Yeah. Like the education is not the, the education. Thing. They could also be suffering from trauma, from substance abuse, from PTSD, from domestic violence. Um, you know, there's so many things that come into play and yeah. And they might not yeah. have anywhere to go. Yeah. And right? you know, if it comes down to it, think about it yourself. What if you're a parent of six children all six of your children need food on the table. You're not able to provide them with that food. You have no income. Would you not go to any means necessary to put food in your child's belly? Like, you know, sometimes you have to think yeah. of it as your own issue. You know, you're no better than nobody that, you know, does um, sex work or goes into that. You have to look at people's, you know, circumstances yeah, it reminds me of Robert Agnew's general strength theory. I don't know if you know about it. Um, have you heard yeah, of it? Yeah, I've heard of it through my jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the idea is that usually, you know, individuals uh, will see like a goal they want to obtain. So, for example, they may see other people with like Gucci shoes, Gucci belt, and, you know, they want it for themselves too. But when there's not a legitimate legal way for them to get it for example the education might not be there or you know there might they might not get any jobs they will turn to means that are criminal to kind of satisfy that goal and i think that plays into a lot of different criminal activity that individuals go into mm -hmm. and so, yeah. society has a lot of play into you know what an individual is going to go through and what problems could arise and you know it also comes down to their socioeconomic status you know are they living in poverty um yeah exactly yeah um so what Kamala Harris saw was she saw that these girls um who didn't want to be a part of the sex trade were actually stuck <laughs> as they didn't have nowhere to go because there was no safe house for them so in 2005, due to her efforts and the efforts of her colleagues um, in San Francisco, they created a place where these young girls could go. So there was some, she did some problem solving around the issues in the community, right? Mm -hmm. So later on, she became California's first black district attorney. So after three months, a police officer was shot and killed. 
So keeping up with her political stance regarding death penalties, she announced that her office wouldn't be asking for a death penalty of the perpetrator. So this made the police very angry. And the reason she opposed the death penalty is kind of similar to my belief on the death penalty. It's because she believed the death penalty did not stop people from committing crimes. Like it doesn't deter people. And the courts have like historically um, and at that time were not fair in handing down the death penalty as it was often given to individuals from like a certain class and a certain race, right? So individuals from a certain race are more likely to receive the death penalty. Um, you know, there's uh, racial profiling for the that the police does. Um, and then the judges hand down sentences differently according to race and uh, class. Um, so I actually agreed with her opinion on there. What are your thoughts, Preet? Um, I agree as well, 100%. So she also worked alongside the Center for Women's Development to rethink and make changes to the Law Cabin Ranch, a facility which served moderate to middle-level male juvenile offenders. So they worked together to create a different option um, in contrast to sentencing uh, moving towards rehabilitation, family counseling was emphasized, as well as uh, education and vocational training. As California's Attorney General, Harris made her position on same-sex marriage clear as she refused to defend Proposition 8 once it was struck down by the federal court. Proposition 8 banned same-sex weddings. In 2014, she flipped her stance. I, I, I find this kind of surprising. And she promised to defend the death penalty and decided to appeal a federal judge's decision that found the death penalty unconstitutional. So she basically um, went against her first stance on the death penalty. So then she later on, as we all know, she decided to run for the presidential election, but had to pull out of the race due to inadequate funds. And in 2020, Biden decided to appoint Harris as his running mate, eventually making her vice president after her victory. Mm. Um, there's a lot of controversy uh, with Harris as well. Um, Preet, could you touch upon that? Um, so for you that don't know, Kamala Harris um, actually um, supported for-profit institutions, meaning that um, she was for for-profit prisons, meaning that these prisons were being paid for every person that was held behind bars so where they were actually making profit off of all the pr uh, prisoners and inmates and this really um you know overrepresented the african-american population um behind bars and as well um kamala harris actually um failed to recognize that um different different inmates there's actually quite a few um if you look into it you can find each individual person that there was evidence proving that the person was innocent and she did not um take the evidence into um consideration and actually withheld these people from being released from the prison institution knowing that they were innocent and not guilty of the crime that they were charged and sentenced um so she knew that these people were sentenced for crimes that they did not commit and uh she did not review that um evidence um and as well um 
she was also San Francisco's district attorney from 2004 to 2011. So during that time, like Manpreet said, um, she was criticized um, in 2010, um, like I said, for also withholding um, information about a police laboratory technician who was accused of intentionally sabotaging her work and stealing drugs from the lab. This was after a memo had surfaced showing that um, Harris's uh, deputies knew about the technician's wrongdoing and recent conviction, uh, conviction, but they failed to alert defense lawyers. So a judge did end up condemning um, Harris's indifference to the systematic violation of the defendant's constitutional rights. Um, and then so Miss Harris um, contested the ruling and she argued that the judge um, whose husband was a defense, a, a defense attorney had spoken publicly about the importance of disclosing evidence and had a conflict of interest. Um, so Miss Harris did lose and um, more than 600 cases were handled by the corrupt technician and they were all dismissed. 600. Wow. So that raises kind of like an inner conflict for me because like you see um, a woman who's a black South Asian female who becomes the vice president and that just makes you go, oh my goodness, right? Like that could <laughs> be me. She looks like me, um, you know, South Asian background. But at the same time, there's some good things she's done and some really bad things that you know she's done so how do you feel about um, her please? I did have concerns so my personal story like I knew about Kamala Harris before she actually ran for vice presidency and so before that like and you know I knew about all the controversies he had and I was not a Kamala Harris supporter and then it was kind of weird to me how she switched her stance on a few things. And she's like, okay, well, I'm not for profit institutions anymore. I want to deprivatize, um, you know, prisons. And that's when I, I was like, wait, what? What's happening? I'm like, is she actually changing yeah. her ways? Um, so I do definitely not, do not agree with um, the, some of the things that she's done in her past. Because um, she really disproportion disproportionately affected low-income people of color um, through her um, wrongdoings as well. And all I can hope is that, you know, uh, so she has mended her ways. Maybe that um, she no longer supports the causes that she was supporting before that don't make any sense to me. And as a person that comes yeah. from a person of color, uh, I just expect her to do more for her people. Yeah, I was um, really surprised that she changed her stance on the death mm -hmm. penalty, right? In the beginning, she was against it, then she was for it. And again, that like ties into how it affects African American population the most, right? Look at yeah. death row um, and the people that are on death row, first of all, they've been let down by society to the max. Um, when you look at each individual case, and most of these people are African Americans, right? So, like, it all yeah. her wrongdoings kind of like turn into a huge circle, and they all kind of tie in with one another. But at the same time, I feel like she's still an inspiring woman. Um, we get to now see a woman in the second highest position in the White House as Vice President. You know, not only is she a woman, that is um, another like one glass ceiling to break but she's also a black 
South Asian mm-hmm. woman. That is huge. That those are a lot of hurdles to especially, jump over right? to get especially to after the president that we just got rid of in the United States. You know, then for yeah. a female to come in and not only to be a person of color, like, damn, <laughs> that's what we needed. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard enough for a woman to make it in, make it into power, but for a black South Asian woman to do it is amazing. Especially after that letdown when you know uh, Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump, and we felt like it had to do a lot with her gender mm-hmm. as a woman. And it, and you know, yeah. um, so like also when we talk about women that inspire us, like when we're talking about. Um, uh, Kamala Harris and um, saying that you know even though there's a few things that we don't agree with um, we can still agree that she's an inspiring woman without completely agreeing with everything that she's done you know I agree yeah so when um, the inauguration was happening for me as a brown South Asian woman it gave me chills and made me almost like Mm teary-eyed watching that watching this black South Asian woman take that top spot. That was just amazing, right? And when we look at um, most of, you know, the, the, the members of um, Congress um, in the United States, most of them are white American men, you know? So for, for us to see more representation of people that represent us individuals, individuals it's a stepping stone definitely especially the second highest position in the white house and even looking back looking at the pictures of her childhood that they were showing where she's like wearing um you know those hoop earrings that you know a lot of uh south asian individuals wear that's like you know traditionally we're given those little hoop earrings um and then her wearing those braids as well right so those those two braids are kind of in the South Asian culture mm-hmm. as well. So it makes you feel like, hey, this person looks like me. Maybe I can be in that mm-hmm. spot one day, right? So I think like that was amazing to see um, for someone that looks like you to be in the second highest position in the White House. And like, think about it, like, Back in our day when we were going in high school, could you really imagine yourself with going to high school with two braids like that? Like, you know, people would make fun yeah, of Yeah, and she was right? probably dealing with a lot back then too, going through high school because back then, um, you know, <laughs> we weren't represented as much and we were often looked at as um, diff- uh, different and, you know, bullied or made fun of for being different. Um, now it's yeah. for us, at least in Surrey, it's pretty common for us to come upon people that come from India, but back at that time, it was probably not that common, you know? So for example, like her hoop earrings really like stuck out to me. Cause when I was younger, like those traditional Indian hoop earrings, right? Like, you know what I'm talking yeah. about, right? Yeah. So when I was younger, I wore like these gold, um, traditional Punjabi earrings to school and a Caucasian kid was like, ew like not you but he was like I wear silver like kind of put down the gold earrings and then I went home and I was like to my mom like I want silver earrings and my mom was so confused she's like you know gold is more expensive like why would you want silver earrings but 
yeah so that like it was so different and then the braids thing like you could see Caucasian girls could get away with it but if a brown girl wore like two braids like that it would be looked yeah you'd be made fun of and you know what's so weird nowadays if you notice that it's like a huge um fashion trend to have braided pigtails especially dutch braids so yeah i don't know what's happening (laughs) and i think still i think still it's more like acceptable for caucasian girls to wear them and rock them compared to Mm -hmm. brown girls Oh, like, in my opinion, Kamala Harris does have controversy, but it doesn't take away from the fact that she smashed that glass mm-hmm. ceiling. Okay. So for number three, the woman that um, myself is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, also known as her initials, uh, AOC. So she's an American politician serving in the U.S. representative for New York's 14th Congressional District. And she's been doing this since 2019. Um, So that district is the eastern part of the Bronx. Um, Most of you may know that as where Cardi B's from as well. Um, And also portions of the North uh, Central Queens and Rikers Island in New York City. Um, So... Ocasio-Cortez, she attended Yorktown High School and she graduated in 2007 and then she went on to college and she came in second um, for the microbiology category of the International Science and Engineering Fair in 2007 Um, and her research project of antioxidants on the lifespan. and so pretty much what I'm trying to get to is that she was really, really smart um, through a young age. And then she went on and she attended the um, she, uh, she later went on and attended Boston University. And she was uh, she also became the LDZ, uh, LDZ secretary of the state while she was attending university. And then later she also had a John um, Lopez fellowship. So when she was in Boston University, um, during her second year, she lost her father to lung cancer. Um, So one thing that, um, uh, you know, kind of stood out to me was that while Ocasio was in university during her second year, she lost her father to lung cancer. Um, And this kind of as well, because I had also lost my um, dad the same year to a different illness and even though she had such a major loss in her life she was still um you know she was still involved in other um, communities and trying to make change so um, she said that this experience uh, experience helped her um to learn firsthand how attorneys appointed by the court to administer um an ins- estate can enrich themselves at the expense of families struggling to make sense of the bureaucracy. So during her loss, she also had to go through a lengthy estate battle. Um, So she did learn quite a bit through that. Um, And also like um, during college, so she was an intern for U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy and she was in his section for foreign affairs and immigration issues. And she was the only Spanish uh, speaker there. So she was, what, uh, 19 to 20 years old at that time. And um, 
at that time, she was dealing with people that had been arrested by ICE or had their children taken by ICE or had a family member arrested by ICE and was frantically trying to figure out where this person had gone, how to track them down, how to get them back out, what was going to happen. So Akazi was doing a lot for the immigrants of America that were, you know, being arrested by ICE and being targeted by ICE. And that's a whole nother topic about whether you support or don't support ICE, but I don't. <laughs> so for these points, um, I do see a lot that she has done. Um, and as well, so after Ocasio was done college, she went back to the Bronx and she took on a job as a bartender and a waitress to help her mom. Um, and her mom was a house cleaner and a school bus driver. So they came from the working class, which was major. Um, and later on, she launched the Brook Avenue Press, uh, which is a publishing firm for books that portrayed the Bronx in a positive light instead of a negative light. She also worked for the nonprofit National Hispanic Institute. And during 2016, Ocasio Cortez worked as an organizer for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. And after the general election, she then traveled to America, like she traveled, sorry, across America by car, visiting places such as Flint, Michigan, um, the Standing Rock Indian Reservation in North Dakota. And she also spoke about the Flint water crisis, which was not gaining as much media attention, um, and as well as the Dakota Access Pipeline. So she was speaking about topics that meant a lot to American people, but did not receive as much media attention or support um, for members of Congress as they should. Um, so in an interview, she also um, recalled that in December 2016, when she visited Standing Rock, um, it was a tipping point for her, saying that she believed that she could her office effectively if she had access to wealth, social influence, and power. Um, but during, um, like I said, so she visited the Standing Rock um, Indian Reservation in December 2016. And, you know, she went into this visit thinking that if she wanted to run for office, her only way to effectively access to wealth, um, social influence, and power. Um, but when she visited um, this Indian reservation in North Dakota, she saw that others, quote unquote, were putting their whole lives and everything that they had on the line for protection of their community. And this, she said, inspired her to begin her work for her own community. So once um, she visited North Dakota, she did receive a phone call from a brand new Congress, which was recruiting uh, progressive candidates. And um, her brother had nominated her soon after 2016's election day. Um, so a couple of things that Ocasio's done um, that stood out to myself and kind of give you more information on why, uh, why um, I find her very inspiring. So in February of 2019, um, she submitted her first piece of legislation, uh, which was the Green New Deal, um, to the Senate. So um, this was an, a joint and like a non-binding resolution, which laid out a 10-year plan um, for economic mobilization, which would get rid of pretty much fossil fuels. And um, 
you know, she was saying that their plan implemented the social cost of carbon, um, which, um, you know, addresses climate change as well. And in this um, process, she really aimed to create jobs and boost the economy. Um, and, you know, according to CNBC, the initial outline the Green New Deal called for was um, completely ditching fossil like I said early, and upgrading or replacing every building in the country and totally overhauling transportation to the point where air travel stops becoming necessary. So this 10-year plan that she had come with would really change how, you know, we're polluting our air, how we're damaging our our um, our planet overall and make it a more uh, climate-friendly um you know, environment um, and fossil fuels, they do so much, um, they have such a negative impact on our world. So, you know, getting rid of that is actually something that everyone should have in some sort of green deal. And Ocasio, so she was the one that first submitted the first piece of legislation for this deal. Um, so I found that really interesting. Um, and as well, so Ocasio is a part of a term called the squad. Um, so there's a few things that I would like to point out about um, Ocasio-Cortez that really stood out to me. So the first thing is that she was the uh, first one to submit her first piece of legislation, the Green New Deal, to Senate in February of 2019. She and Senator Ed Markey released a joint non-binding resolution, which laid out um, th the main elements of a 10-year economic mobilization plan which would phase out fossil fuel use and overhaul the nation's infrastructure. So their plan was calling for the implementation of social cost of carbon, which was a part of Obama's administration plans to address climate change. And um, in this process, they aim to create new jobs and boost the economy. Um, so Ocasio is also part of what we're, um, we're told is the squad and what they're commonly referred to. So this squad is an informal group of progressive freshman uh, members of Congress. So this includes, um, sorry, I may not say their names correctly, um, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, uh, Rashida Talab, <laughs> Corey Bush, and Jamal Bauman. On July 14, 2019, Trump attacked the squad, which only had four members at the time. And in a tweet, he was saying that they should go back to their own countries and help fix that before, before they come forward and try to criticize the American government. And he continued to make these similar comments. And you know what Ocasio's um, words um, were in a responding tweet? It was that the president's words yesterday, quote unquote, Telling four American congresswomen of color to go back to your own country is a hallmark language of white supremacists. Um, she said, sorry, word for word, we don't leave the things that we love and when we love this country. What that means is that we propose the solutions to fix it. Um, so days later, Trump uh, falsely asserted that Ocasio called the country and the people in it garbage. So there is a lot of... Uh, you know, bullying and harassment going on from Trump and other uh, members of Congress just because 
not only was she new and she was a freshman into um, the Congress, but she was also a woman of color. And that too, she came from the working class and she came from a family of immigrants. So for her to be targeted for that and for her to speak up and call it out for what it really is um, was really inspiring. And um, so Ocasio, because of the way that she stands up for people, she's been verbally assaulted by many Republican representatives. So back in July 2020, um, Republican representatives Ted um, Yoho and Roger Williams um, accosted Ocasio-Cortez on the steps of the Capitol. And um, this is where Yoho... um, as like this was sorry overheard by a journalist called Ocasio disgusting and told her that she's out of her freaking mind um, for suggesting that poverty and um, unemployment were driving a spike in crime in the in New York City during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, wow. So pretty much <laughs> everyone's pissed that this girl, sorry, this woman is out here making change and calling out anything that she sees as, you know, um, condemnable. Um, She condemns um, any violations of human rights. She wants the betterment for her people, the working class, immigrants, and she wants a better America, you know? It's funny how the women who stand up uh, in regards to social justice issues get called, like, negative names. And (laughs) guess what? Guess what Yoho called her? And I'm going to beep this out so you guys can put together what, you know, um, you think that this person said. Um, But Ocasio told Yoho that he was being rude. And as Ocasio walked away from the Capitol, Yoho called her an beep. This is coming from a member of Congress, a Republican representative that's been elected, you know. And this type of language just does not belong, does not belong in any workplace let alone our, like, our political parties and, you know, our government. Like, these are not the people that we need representing nobody, if you can't even give decent respect to one another, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so so in 2021, um, as most of you may know, um, there was a storming of the U.S. Capitol. Um, So during this time, Okazi was actually a victim um, of this riot um, and terrorist um, attack building of the United States. Um, so yeah, so she was hiding in the bathroom of her office. And this is when she was approached by a Capitol Police officer who actually told her that she has to evacuate her office and go to a different um, house office building. And this, um, this officer didn't self-identify. And she actually believed that this officer wasn't an officer and was actually the voice of an attacker. So she wow. she described herself sheltering um, in Representative um, Katie Porter's office. And, you know, at this point, she really thought she was going to lose her life because not only was she a constant victim of abuse, um, verbal abuse, bullying, harassment, name calling, um, whatever it may be from members of Congress, especially the uh, Republican Party. Um, And now she, you know, she was fearing her life in this this case because she had no one to protect her. She was not only being a target from members of 
Congress, but she is also being targeted by a bunch of white supremacists that wanted to storm the U.S. Capitol and pretty much assassinate members that they did not agree with. Um, so she's a part of that. And as well as this year in 2021, um, Ocasio-Cortez actually reacted to the Texas power crisis by organizing a fundraiser to provide food, water, and shelter to affected Texans. Um, so the fundraiser, which actually began on February 18th, raised $2 million in its first day and $5 million by February 21st. So the money from um, this fundraiser went to organizations such as the Houston Food Bank and the North Texas Food Bank. And during this time, Ocasio-Cortez actually traveled to Houston to help volunteers with recovery. And one thing I'd like to point out is that, you know what um, Ted Cruz was doing, sorry, during this time? Yeah, he was yeah. vacationing. He was flying <laughs> to Mexico. Um <laughs> Yeah, mic drop. I don't even think we need to say anything more. <laughs> um, so overall, Ocasio believes um, in defunding and abolishing the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE, um, on multiple occasions. So in February 2018, she called it a product of the Bush era Patriot Act, sweet, uh, sorry, sweet of legislation, and an enforcement agency that takes on more of a parliament, uh, sorry, para every single day. Um, so she said she would stop it completely disbanding the agency and would rather create a pathway to citizenship for more immigrants through decriminalization. Um, so 100% agreed. Um, I don't think and will never believe that immigrants are criminals or like, you know, um, committing a criminal act by trying to immigrate into a country to give themselves and their children and their family a better life. So that really stuck out to me as well. I ICE has actually violated a lot of human rights. Um, and mm -hmm. those, of the, uh, those of you that don't know, ICE actually has people living in unhumanitarian, sorry, environments. So, for example, um, children were taken away from their parents at borders and they were put in different holding cells. So this was including babies. Um, a two-year-old, this made it onto the news, a two-year-old was arrested and put in front of a judge. That could severely impact the psychological development of the baby if they're like being taken away from their mm -hmm. parent. That would cause attachment so issues. That that's been happening for the past so many years um and this has really impacted so many people and you know i don't have the correct number there was thousands of children that were taken away from their families and the trump administration said to 500 um and you know this might be um up or down 50 people because i don't remember the exact number but over 500 children were not able to be reunited to their parents and trump administration said well what can we do um that's disgusting. Um, I agree with you. That's horrible. And so this two-year-old was also taken in front of a judge um, and, you know, was there for the, its bail hearing. So I don't know where um, this would be considered a useful time of, you know, courts and um, judges and, um, you know, their time as well. And the use of our justice system in the United States, when a two-year-old's being told, hey, like you're going to be shown in front of a judge and then we'll tell you whether based on that or not you're being removed from grounds of the United States or not. Um, so I think that's completely 
um that that's just wild to me I just don't understand and I could never be okay with that um so Ocasio has also expressed support for the roadmap to freedom resolution to guide future immigration policy um and she uh aims to, you know, safeguard vulnerable migrants while reducing criminal prosecutions of migrants. Um, so she also um, believes in um, a single-payer health system and views medical care as a human right. And she believes yeah. that every every American um, should have access to health care. And it's not something that just the rich and wealthy um, should be deserving of. Um, she also is against poverty and has been fighting um, poverty for a while. She introduced an anti-poverty policy proposal, um, which was called um, a just society that would take into account the cost of childcare, healthcare, and new necessities like internet while measuring poverty. So this proposal would cap annual rent increases and ensure access to social welfare programs for people with convictions and undocumented um, immigrants as well. So in a census, um, in a U.S. census, about 40 million Americans live in poverty. So she's really fighting for the people of America. And also, she believes in LGBTQ um, equality and rights. She has said that she supports the community and has thanked her members in their role for her campaign. She publicized and later appeared on a video game live stream, which helped raise money for Mermaids, which is a UK-based charity for trans children. Um, and then in January 2019, she also um, was a part of the Women's March in Manhattan. And she gave a detailed speech in support of measures that needed to ensure LGBTQ equality in workplaces and elsewhere. Um, so she really recognizes transgender rights. Um, and she said that it's a no brainer, quote unquote, trans rights or civil rights are human rights. And that is something I completely agree with. How does she um, inspire you? Um, she really inspires me because she, <laughs> She really goes out there and fights for the people that are usually looked down upon. Like, for example, um, people that are living in poverty. You know, she's giving a, vo a voice to those that don't have voices. She's also fighting for immigrants. And in a society where we live, um, and as well, we lived through the Trump era of him being president, um, immigrants were really, really um, looked down upon, you know? And people really mm -hmm. looked at, like, immigration as a criminal act which made no sense to me because unless you're first nations honey we all immigrated from somewhere whether that was us or grandparents or great-grandparents or our ancestors you know completely agree and how that. are you gonna now come here and say hey um i was allowed into this country or my ancestors and my grandparents were allowed but you're not allowed it makes no sense to me and i don't believe that any person's just going to go and get up and move to another country um, you know, you go there either for a safety, for better um, life, um, for a better life, for having your basic needs met, for educational, um, to be able to make a money, be sorry, be able to make a living, you know, have an income, have, mm -hmm. you know, access to uh, medical treatments. There's so many things that you come to another country for. No one, it's not like... Um, it's not a vacation. Do you get what I mean? And you know what? For a given, immigrants have it a lot harder than people that are born into a country. And a lot of people that come from other countries, 
you know, they come with different trades, skills, or education. And some of these people come from such educated backgrounds and then come on and take on roles that are, you know, uh, minimum wage jobs and require labor just for that betterment of their life. Yeah, for their safety, they might be fleeing mm -hmm. a country that's really unsafe mm -hmm. and dangerous. Like, for example, the caravan that happened. Um, a lot of these people were coming from Honduras, which is the um, homicide capital of the world. So you tell me, would you want to live there? If you live there, would you not try to survive? Would you not try to get your families out? You know, a lot of these people really have the um, benefit and um, let's just say the protection for the fact that they can't imagine themselves in that situation and have never been in that situation. I think we can put ourselves in their shoes by thinking about mm -hmm. like our parents and our grandparents who immigrated from India because uh, India ha didn't have that like very good environmental conditions, very good health conditions. And, you know, there's a lot of corruption mm -hmm. in India. So they also came from mm -hmm. there. So we can mm -hmm. all relate. and you know, our parents came here for the betterment of our future, you know, so exactly. how can we yeah. some more opportunity? And how can we be hypocrites and be like, Okay, well, I deserve to immigrate to a different country, but you don't that makes no sense. You don't get to pick and choose when mm -hmm. immigration is a criminal act and not. <laughs> So yeah, so and as well, like the fact that she's, you know, she came from a Catholic um, religious background. And for her to, you know, fight for transgender and LGBTQ equality, um, that really stuck out to me, you know, and this sticks to kind of like my core, um, core belief is that you don't have to be religious to be a good person, you just have to be a genuine caring person. And her religious views didn't, um, impact her way of thinking that the LGBTQ community does not deserve equality. And as well, um, on education, Ocasio-Cortez also campaigned in favor of establishing tuition-free public colleges and trade schools. I think that would also be mm -hmm. great because, as you may know, school is very expensive, especially post-secondary. And the more opportunities, the better for the economy and better for your country overall. So there's a lot of progress that she can make. And I look forward to seeing what she does in the future. Um, also, you know, with our, with our last two people, they had a lot in common. And the fact that they were really targeted um, for speaking up, you know. So number two is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG. So in 1956, she attended a law school, which consisted of only nine females and five males. Could you believe that? That's like. That would be that would very, suck. um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be like uncomfortable. You're like nine out of five. And this is not with like, men with the same thinking that they have now and all the progress we've made. This was, yeah. Exactly. So this is people that did not see you valuable outside of the home, outside of raising kids, you know? Yeah. And that's what happened. So when she was going to this law school, the dean of the university invited her and the other female students and asked them, why are you at Harvard Law School taking the place of a man? Um, okay, men. Uh... <laughs> that would make me so mad. Men don't belong there. <laughs> Women do. <laughs> Can you imagine saying something like that? I would get like 10 DMs right now saying like, you don't believe in equal rights for men. But, you know, this stuff goes on. It's crazy. Anyways, continue. <laughs> <laughs> so in the beginning of her career in New York, no law firm would hire her. So she ended wow. up teaching. Yeah. 
1972, she, along with another individual, co-funded the Women's Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, the Women's Rights Project, as well as other ACLU projects, worked on more than 300 gender discrimination cases by 1974. In 1996, she gave her majority opinion in U.S. versus Virginia case, indicating that women who were fully qualified could not be denied admission from Virginia Military Institute. She took gender discrimination cases to the Supreme Court and was successful in arguing six of them. In 1999, she also stood up for the rights of those with mental disabilities to live in their communities. So in this case, two women were admitted in a psychiatric facility, but after their treatment, they were uh, kept in isolation. They were continued to be kept in isolation at that hospital, even though they had been medically cleared to go and live in a community-based environment. In a 2006 case, she wrote a dissent. This was a case in which a female worker sued due to her being paid way less than, male, than males who shared the same qualifications as her. However, she was not given relief due to a statute of limitations issue. The issue is that she had, she had to have filed within 180 days of the violation, but she failed to do so. So Justin, Justice Ginsburg disagreed and in her dissent asked for Congress to undo this interpretation of the law. And afterwards, she worked with President Obama to pass the Lilly Ledbetter I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009. In 2015, in another case, she presided over a case which gave same-sex couples the right to marry in all 50 yes. states. <laughs> in the case of Whole Woman's Health versus um, Hellerstead, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but <laughs> she, pres <laughs> she presided over the case involving Texas omnibus abortion bill this bill had implemented very strict restrictions and requirements on abortion providers in this case she stated the law would simply make it more difficult for them to obtain abortions when a state severely limits access to safe and legal procedures women in desperate circumstances may resort to unlicensed rogue practitioners at great risk at great risk to their health and safety so very inspiring lady. Um, she has mm -hmm. passed away, but um, I believe she, you know, she has done so much um, for women and for, for same-sex couples. Um, she is inspiring as she really fought for the rights of women and for wage equality for women and was actually able to make a dent mm -hmm. in women's rights, I believe. Like she, her, you know, those cases were significant and it's also interesting how, you know, her path was not easy. You know, she came into the legal profession at a time where not many women were going mm -hmm. to law school. And as I talked about, she did face a tough time with those who thought she was just taking a man's mm -hmm. place, right? Another thing that I found interesting was uh, she didn't flip-flop on issues. She was very consistent in favor of women's rights mm -hmm. and social justice. And I would also like to say that, like, it's really um, admirable that, you know, uh, she stood up for a woman's rights and the way that she said that, like, you know, um, making it very difficult for women to access abortion puts them in very unsafe situations, you know, um, and yeah. I'm pro-choice, your body, your choice. And I don't believe yeah. that someone else 
And this goes for every individual out there. No one else should be making the decision of what and what cannot happen to you or be done with your body. You are the leader. You are the captain of your own body. Your choice. It's your body. Um, so this is so admirable. And well um, Manpreet and I come from, you know, a family from India. So India is another place where it's very difficult for women to access abortion. And, you know, there's a lot of other issues going on, too. But um, in this case, a lot of women have actually died from botched abortions. And it's so sad that this could all be preventable. But this leads us uh, to... Yes, number one. <laughs> so number one. Um, so number one um, is No Deep Core. So No Deep Core is an inspiration to myself greatly, and I hope to educate all of you on who No Deep Core is and give her the recognition that she really deserves. And so No Deep um, is 25 years old, Indian Dalit um, labor rights activist, and a member of Mazdur Adhikar Sangat. Then, um, so sorry, I might botch some of these Punjabi words, but I'm trying my best. Um, and another word for this is MAS. Um, so it's one of the unions of industrial workers that actively support the 2020-2021 farmers protest. Um, so Nodeep is just 25 years old, guys. She's very young. And she was born into a poor Dalit family in Punjab. And those of you that don't know, Dalit is a caste um that was created and another definition of that is the untouchables so they're a caste that's very oppressed and usually denied um human rights and looked down upon by other members of the caste system that may be higher so she was born to um, a poor dalit family in punjab and she was brought upon in a family that had always stood up against oppression and exploitation. So Nodeep's mom had been a member of Kassan Union, and she had protested against the rape of a landless um, Dalit woman by her upper caste landlord in her village. So this woman was raped, um, and the person that had raped her was considered of a higher caste. And no one was really seeking out dust, justice sorry, for this woman. And Nodeep's mom did. And because of this, her family was actually socially boycotted and had to move to Talangana, which is a different village. So pretty much they had to leave their village just because they stood up for someone that other people believe should not be spoken up for. So because of this, Nodeep's studies were discontinued and she had to complete grade 12 from an open college. And after she completed grade 12, she actually came to Delhi in 2019 and she wanted to join an undergraduate course in Delhi University. So in Delhi, she actually became a member of Bhagat Singh Chatra Ikta Manch. And Bhagat Singh Chatra Ikta Manch, which is also known as BSCEM, is a pro-left organization in Delhi University. So as a member of the student organization, she was actually active in anti-CAA protests. And later on, due to um, financial um, obstructions in her family and you know, not having the means of support to fund other um, other other projects that she had in mind, she actually joined a company in Gundli, uh, which is an industrial area of Sonipat um, district in Haryana. So she was actually very disturbed um, when she was there and she witnessed the consistent humiliation of laborers at the hand of factory owners. 
So this is when she actually started demanding the implementation of minimum wage act. Um, so she demanded that equal pay for equal work for women labor. And she also wanted payment for overtime jobs and more. So for to for her to successfully campaign for these demands, she joined Majdur Adhikar Sangatan, which is MAS. And Nodeep being Nodeep um, stood up for no, uh, farmers' rights at the farmers' protest, which, as most of you should know, hopefully, is the world's largest um, human rights uh, protest going on. And for this, she was actually arrested from the Kundli industrial area by Haryana police on January 12th of 2021. So the Haryana police um, had FIRs, which are also known as charges in India, filed against Nodip on a wide range of sections. And these sections included unlawful assembly, assault, and criminal force, trespass, extortion, snatching, criminal intimidation, and attempt to murder. And this was all based on statements made by a police inspector and the accountant of a company that she had filed a lawsuit against, which paid to uh, which failed, sorry, to pay their protesting workers wages. So talk about corruption right there. Nodeep spoke up against accountant of a company and this person went forward, teamed up with cops and made up false allegations and they have no evidence against any of the FIRs that were, you know, that her. And she was allegedly beaten and sexually assaulted while in police custody. So according to Nodeep's lawyer, a medical report ordered after her arrest revealed that wounds were present that pointed towards sexual assault. So the Sonipat court in Haryana denied bail to Nodeep on February 2nd of 2021 in one of the three FIRs on the grounds that allegations are serious in nature, but got bail and other two FIRs after that. So imagine this, not only are you arrested for something that they have no evidence for, but now you're being told that, hey, you're going to be given bail for a crime that you don't even have any means of arresting her on. Um, but continued, the police have still till this day not shown any evidence on any of these crimes. So this woman is incredibly, incredibly inspiring. And yes, and she's a young woman. And for her to already make such a big impact on not only India and the farmers protest, but women and the labor workers in India and, you know, working towards equality in India, which is so hard to view as something that might happen one day, but it's all something that we need. So Mampri, um, just wondering, um, maybe like the other viewers, um, people like Nodeep have not been, um, you know, internationally recognized as much, but for the years coming, yeah. who know that, who knows what, she, you know, Nodeep's going to be capable of. Imagine all the changes that she'll make for the generations of women to come. Yeah. And I think this also ties in why a lot of individuals, um, they, um, immigrate to Canada or the US like they want their kids to have the ability um, to be free freely able to express themselves and you know no deep kind of has had a hard time being able to express herself by being mm -hmm. wrong and you know the most disgusting part of this is that there are people that um, 
you know, hate people so much for speaking up for equality and for women's rights and for the rights of, you know, people that are looked down upon. All right. So that was our number one. All of these ladies, um, you know, they are empowering women. They have done a lot. Um, Some controversial, um, but they all Mm -hmm. deserve to be on here. And you can. Sorry. Yeah. And you can agree to disagree with some of the facts, like, say, for example, if you don't support it, don't. But these women are incredible in their own ways. And hopefully one thing has stuck out to you that they've done, you know, for the betterment and equality of women. So Nodeep also has a younger sister named Raj Fierkor. And she stated that the family actually intends to move to Punjab. Diana's high court and say that the story received little to no mainstream media attention because of the family's caste and economic background. So they come from a lot of poverty. And again, they're they're called the untouchables, you know. And um Rajveer had said that Nodeep and other people are um are targeted because of their vision for equality and a society free of oppression and exploitation. So a lot of people don't like this. And um you know, during her arrest, what was really um, crazy and uh, eye-opening, I guess, for the whole world was that Punjabi Canadian poet Rupi Gaur had actually tweeted and brought international attention, w- which also brought in uh, Kamala Harris's niece, Nina Harris, which also tweeted about this and brought global attention to Nodeep. So this is when supporters of Nodeep actually began to tweet and show support for her across the entire world. And she touched many hearts, including my own. Um, And while Nodeep was behind bars, she actually spent a lot of time talking to females that were incarcerated. And they told Nodeep that torture, violence, and sexual abuse was something that they dealt with on a regular basis and was just something that they knew they had to keep dealing with, that nobody cared, that nobody cared to help them, that they were seen as nothing and disposable. And, you know... In India, it's not promised that you're going to have any type of human rights or any type of fair trial. Um, So a lot of these women have, you know, never been given any evidence about the crimes that they've committed and are now sexually and physically abused and tortured behind um, bars, which is really sad. And after everything that she went through, Um, Once she was actually given bail, she returned to the farmer's protest site and she said that the fight's not over yet and she continues to fight for the rights of those that have been told that they don't have any nor do they deserve any. So we also got some listeners' questions that we want to answer today. So Preet, can you read out Yes, Um, so our first question um, is brought uh, brought to us by a listener. And this listener asks, do you two ladies plan to have children one day? Can you share why or why not? Um, so, Manpreet, why don't you take this? <laughs> I do think it's admirable to have kids and raise them to be contributing members of society. I mean, it takes a lot, you know, love, care, and um, attention, and time. Um, but I do believe that it is important that as a society, we don't see having kids as the only function that women perform. So I often get this question from persons outside of my own family, as um, people sometimes just automatically assume that because you just gotten married that you're mm-hmm. going to have children soon. However, like I find myself troubled with that assumption that people make. 
because I feel that assumption just reduces us women and me to our biological function of birthing children when we are so much more than that. Um, Like I said, it is admirable to have children, but as women, we are more than our biological function of giving birth to children. Um, So to more specifically answer your question, for myself, there are things I want to accomplish individually uh, before I bring children into the mix. So yes, I do want children one day, but not right now. And I think it's important for us women to do what we want to do and not to be taken over Mm -hmm. by pressures from society um, and to end up doing what society tells us to do. So we need to fight back um, these uh, traditional, you know, roles that society has given us we need to pull the courage within us and give each other courage by supporting women who take the untraditional route um we also need to stop assuming that after marriage comes children uh we need to stop assuming also that women need to be married in their 20s i mean i waited until my 30s to get married and that's perfectly okay Mm -hmm. because that was my decision so tying into what mamprit said um we don't need to be you know, restricted to what our biological, you know, um, reasoning for being on this earth is. And that's not just for having children. There's plenty of different things that you should do. And I think it's ultimately up to, you know, the up to you and yourself, whether you want to have kids or not. And you should never feel like you're forced into it. And also, there's so many more options nowadays. For example, some people decide to have kids, let's say in their early early adulthood some people choose to have kids in their 40s you know there's so many different things that you can do there's IVF available now you can freeze your eggs you can do so many different things whereas in maybe in the past um that wasn't so openly available for people to access so there's no technical timeline you know there's still ways around it so you should never feel like you need to rush into the next step of your life. Also, I'd like to say, um, please don't go ask women um, if they want children or if they're trying to have kids or, oh, like it's been a while since you've been married. Oh, you haven't ha- decided to have a kid yet. You don't know their internal struggle. You don't know if they've had miscarriages. You don't know um, if they're struggling to get pre- uh, pregnant. You don't know if there's mental health issues that they're dealing with or, you know, they could have like actually, you know, just never wanted children. And now they should not have to justify this to you, right? That's their decision for their life. If you want to have kids, if you want to have kids, go have them yourself. You know, don't, um, don't impose your, don't impose. I think like, we your need to get rid and your own choices onto others. I think we need to get rid of that assumption that just because a woman doesn't have kids yet, that means that yeah. she can't have kids, right? What if it's just her, um her mm-hmm. desire and not they to shouldn't have, have to justify that, that to you right you should just mind your own business and if it happens it happens and you know then this also goes the other way people that choose to have kids early the, you know they don't deserve crap just for doing that either you know pro-choice do it when you want to do it um your body your choice <laughs> and um yeah. those that think that you should do it a certain way tell them be like you want to have a kid you go have a kid For myself, yeah, I do really like children, Um, but, you know, this isn't something magical that's just going to happen. You also have to think about the process of birth. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, that's a long discussion. But, yes, I do plan on having kids one day, and when I have one, um, you guys will know. Uh, so our second question, Manpreet, uh, is right here. Um, 
This question is, um, this listener is asking, how to break up with a person that never lets you call it off? So I think it's important to do it in a way that will ensure mm-hmm. for your safety, right? You got to think safety first. So if, it, if this is a person that's really like not wanting to break up and like obsessed with you, mm-hmm. you need to think about your safety before you take any action. Mm-hmm. So safety is paramount. And um, it's important to be kind, um, especially like uh, if you're dealing with someone who may be like, it's important to be kind towards anyone. But I think it can make a difference um, if you're dealing with someone who's mm-hmm. extremely distraught. Um, l- be kind to the person like you would to any other person, regardless yeah. of the reason for a breakup, right? Uh, you want to continue to be your kind self regardless mm-hmm. of what the other person has done um don't be wishy-washy oh, right? don't I hate that. go back and forth <laughs> you want to make your position clear otherwise you're just confusing the other person it's going to make the other person um upset um not that you know it's your fault for breaking up with them but it does kind of make the person confused and you don't want to confuse yeah. them you want to make your position clear um I would also say don't say the faults of the other person, even if they have faults, um, because that just gives them a weight, gives them some, uh, gives them a chance to jump in and be like, I'll change myself. Right. Yeah. And, or like, you know, self-blame, like Preet said, Um, I would just say that, you know, the relationship isn't the right fit for you and, you know, tell them that they are a wonderful person and it doesn't have to do with who they are as a person. Um, I also believe that, you know, if the person is very hurt and they want the relationship to continue, it's very unhealthy for them to continue to talk to you. It might just feed into their um, idea that maybe one day you guys will be back together and they might have that in their head if you do continue talking to them. So I would say um, try to stop the communication for a while for the other individual's mental health. So that would include no phone, no phone Mm -hmm. calls and not seeing each other. Right. Um, Do not attempt to contact them or try to be friends because um, they're going to be distraught at this stage of the breakup and they may misinterpret any reconnection or friendship as a signal that you guys might be getting back together. And you know what, if they start stalking you or threatening you definitely contact the police and maybe assess the option of getting a restraining order. But I would see this as a last resort. I mean, you have to do your part too, which means no contact and giving no hope to the other person of remaining friends or a future of a relationship. Um, so what I've actually you, been through a situation um, that reminded me of this listener's question. Um, and like Manpreet said, you really have to make sure that you're safe um, before you, you know, go upon this um, in a different way. For example, um, if you're not going to be physically safe, maybe don't do it in person, you know, so that way you have that barrier of safety. Um, for example, if this person's physically abusive or you fear for your physical safety, um, definitely something that you should look out for. Um And that may mean that it might have to be a phone call or, um, you know, you may need someone around um, or, you know, I know this is I know a lot of people say you should do it face to face, but sometimes that's just not possible. Um, For example, this person may try to talk you out of it 
uh, may not take you seriously. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but pretty much may not let you break up with them like this listener is saying. So, for example, in my case, what really helped me was that um, I really had to think about it. You know, I had to sit, sit down and think, is this a relationship that I want to continue? How is this going to work out? Am I going to want to, you know, go back to this person? Am I going to want to go back to this relationship? Like, I had to sit down and have this talk. Like, you know, it's going to be lonely. It's going to suck for a bit because this person's been around for so long. But it's just something that you have to do for yourself. So for me... Um, what I did was I tried to do it in person, um, but that did not work out. The person wasn't really open to ha- a breaking up. So then at that point, I had um, sent a text and said, you know, I've been trying so many times, but somehow every time we try to talk in person, I come back home, still a part of a relationship that I don't want to be in. Um, so there was that. And when it came down to it, honestly, um, All I could do was say that this is it. Uh, You need to respect my choices. And if you continue to harass me, um, to show up at my house, to do all sorts of crazy foolishness, um, then I'm going to have to take it into my own hands and contact the police. Um, So yeah, uh, that was a situation I came across. And definitely evaluate your own circumstances. Maybe it's not that serious. And maybe... You know, there is no threat to your safety or your well-being. So then maybe you are able to do it in person. Um, But there's so many things that could go, you know, um, differently or go in a wrong way. So make sure that you're safe and make sure that you're very clear. Um, Don't be rude. Don't be disrespectful. Don't be, um, you know, verbally abusive. Um, But let them know that, you know, if you don't want to be contacted by them, that you're serious about this. And if they're very um, persistent on trying to talk to you or change your mind, then maybe you need to look at other things that, you know, you could use um, or look out for for help. And I think it's also different if you live with the individual. Don't you think, Mapreet? So in that sense, um, if you're in an unsafe situation and you live with this individual, maybe you might want um, to move out and you might want to remove your belongings. In this case, I would definitely reach out to your local non-emergency police department and see if they can send someone with you just to be there while you remove your stuff. So our last question um, from our lovely listener is, if you could give your younger self advice, what would it be? Okay. <laughs> um, advice that I would give my younger self. Um, I guess, okay, in the sense, I would hope to think that when I was younger than 20 is the time that we're talking about. Um, so in that life, sorry, in that phase of my life, I would, I would tell myself, you know, life is hard. But there's nothing that you can't get through. Um, love yourself. Don't take BS from anyone. When someone tells you you can't, you definitely can. Um, and sky's the limit. You know, I just wish I could like go back and just give myself a hug. <laughs> and, you know, give myself the love that I needed as a child. Um, and, you know, the encouragement... Um, I don't know. <laughs> There's so much I wish I could go back and tell my younger self. 
What about in, in terms, terms of, of relationships? relationships? Um, so some of you may not agree yeah. with me, but I would tell myself, A, you ain't going to find love in high school. Um, and maybe this doesn't apply to you. Maybe you found a great lover in high school and they worked out. But I truly feel that in my timeline of being in high school, a lot of people are focused on being in relationships rather than actually pursuing their education and find out what they want to go into after high school and focusing on that. Um, I would also tell myself that sweetheart life is so much better after high school. Um, and, you know, relationship wise, like you were saying, in that time, I was thinking like, there's this race to the finish line of finding a partner. I was one of those individuals that thought I would have my degree at 21, um, be engaged by 22, be married by 23, kids by 24, second child by 25, 26. And I'm far behind on this timeline. <laughs> but, you know, it's not realistic. And mm -hmm. there's so much more to life than getting married and having kids, like we were saying earlier. Um, so if I could go back and tell myself, like, I would tell myself, take it slow. Be very picky with who you allow to have access to you and your time. You're so worthy of the love that you are giving to others. And don't let somebody tell you that you don't deserve what you want. You definitely deserve what you want. And you deserve to be treated with kindness, respect, and love. What about you? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um my first relationship I had, um, I was with someone who wasn't a good fit for me, but I just, um, you know, um, went into this relationship because I wanted a relationship. And, you know, that happens in our South Asian culture because weddings are such a big deal. And you're attending these weddings and seeing the beautiful bride and the marriage traditions taking mm -hmm. place. And then you have these Hindi movies, um, which really emphasize finding love. So even if your parents are not pushing you for marriage, society is still mm -hmm. pushing finding a partner onto you with all these movies and whatnot. Um, in my case, my parents never pushed me to find a boyfriend or get married, but I could certainly feel uh -huh. these forces from society. Um, and so you you may also have friends who are in relationships. Um, so that may make you feel pressure from that. But looking back, I would say take your time. Like Preet said, you don't need a boyfriend to live a happy life. Uh, you have so much time to get married. Don't get into a relationship for the sake of a relationship. And you can get love from other individuals, right? It, the, love doesn't only come from the form of a partner. You can get love from your parents or, for example, your, or your special dog. aunt or someone else. <laughs> it can come. Or your dog. <laughs> exactly. So it can come in many different forms and those mm -hmm. forms need to be cherished as well. So that's in regard to relationships. Um, yeah. So I guess that brings it to an <laughs> end for our listeners questions. Um, thank you for listening to our podcast episode. We'll be coming back next week with a new episode for you guys. Um, please follow us on Instagram at Radical Brown Girls Podcast and send us your um, anonymous questions or feedback through our um, link and our suggestion box, which is completely 100% anonymous. And as well, if you feel comfortable, you can always reach out to us through our DMs. Yep. And also, if you like this episode, please rate our uh, podcast and maybe Thank submit you a review. That Bye. would be great. That was Bye. Good. <laughs>